It is, it's such a great way of looking at the world. Personal responsibility is the new counterculture, people. Welcome to the show that the fact checkers warned you about. The one that debunks the mainstream narrative and gives you high signal, actionable content that helps you navigate the clown world. It's Bomb Thrower TV with your host, Mark Jeftovic. This is Adam Meister, the Bitcoin Meister, the Disrupt Meister. Welcome to the One Bitcoin Show. Today is January the 24th of 2024. Wow. Strong hand, long-term thinking. Bitcoin is next Bitcoin. Bitcoin always returns to its all-time high. One day closer to an all-time high. In motion, value your wealth in Bitcoin. I'm offended by selling. All right. That's enough sayings for today. Hello, my elite friends. We've got a special show for you here today. Mark Jeftovic is here. He is the Bitcoin capitalist. All right. He's in Canada. He has really started his own businesses before. He sees this from a unique beast experience perspective he's not some 24 year old kid you know just you know with no experience in the world telling you how to run the world no this dude has seen it okay he knows about government regulations he knows about uh the the do-gooders like uh, the so-called do-gooders like uh, elizabeth warren who are just there to help you now mark you have inspired me with your latest tweet actually about uh, artificial intelligence. And I think we might be on the same page here. I, I see some of our uh, so-called elites, and I don't really consider Klaus Schwab and those dudes at the World Economic Forum elites. I consider us elites because we actually hold Bitcoin. That's, you know, that's, that's the rarest of the rare. But these dudes, all right, cool. They, they, they want to call themselves elite. They want to control the world. They think they know how to micromanage every little thing. They want to micromanage freaking Artificial intelligence. I find it as the ultimate scare tactic to, uh, you know, weasel their way into uh, trying to take over the world through a very undemocratic uh, method. So uh, expand upon your AI and uh, tweet and we'll, 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 we'll tie it in the Bitcoin. Sure. So thanks for having me on the show, Adam. I just lost your video signal. Oh, you're back. But uh, so before before we went live, I just sort of made an off the cuff tweet in response to a thread on Twitter. I guess you call it X now. I still call it Twitter. Maybe I'm aging myself. But um, it was a reference to an old short video called Slaughterbots, where it was a, a sort of a dramatic docudrama sort of depiction of what would happen in a near future um, scenario where you could weaponize like micro drones for an assassination. And then there's a terrorist attack, uh, depicted in it. And then the, uh, I'm sorry, I forget her name who posted that. Uh, and then she posted a follow-up, which seemed to be live aerial footage of an actual poor soul being blown up by a weaponized drone. And, and what I said about that is this technology, I mean, to her point, the first video, the depiction, the short movie Slaughterbots, that technology is already here and there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. Um, and to her point, she showed like a live video or, or like a video from the present era doing exactly that. And um, and it's diffused. It's not centralized. It's not controlled by anybody. And my extrapolation from that is that we live in a world now that's like has this momentum towards decentralization, whether anyone likes it or not. Like it really doesn't matter if you could make the most cogent case, undeniable logic, just can't dispute it for any sort of premise that requires complete centralization and a hundred percent compliance or conformance by the entire global population. It's a non-starter. It's just not going to happen because that's not the way the world works. And so 
we live, I, I say this frequently, we live in essentially an out of control world, right? There's no central control. The WEF is not in control. Davos is not in control. Your government is not in control. And people find that prospect. A lot of people think that that's more terrifying than living in a dystopian top-down Orwellian society uh, because they just want someone to be in charge, but nobody's in charge. Like you're in charge of how you react to what happens to you. And that is it. That's the only thing anybody in the world controls. Now there's these, these levers, right? These levers all over the place that um, elites use and the ultra wealthy use, and that garners them outsized influence. And so they look like these super powerful shadowy cabals of people that move mountains and tectonic plates of entire geopolitical arraignments. But um, that's just using levers. And the, the thing is today, and this is what terrifies elites, is everybody has a lever. You got more levers on this, right, than, than the elites of 50 years ago had at their entire disposable across, disposal across their entire empire. And so, you know, now I am dating myself when I say there used to be a cartoonist named Gary Larson called The Far Side. And, you know, one of his cartoons, this is like, I don't know, 80s, 90s. You know, this middle-aged couple's looking out their window in suburban America, any town, and they look across the street and the husband's like, oh, oh, Edna, you know, the Jones have the bomb now too. And there's like all these nuclear bombs parked in the driveway up the street. Well, everybody's got a nuclear bomb on this now. Everybody's got a nuclear bomb on this laptop. I'm not saying it's a good thing. It's terrifying, but it's also empowering. But we live in this new world now where everybody's got the bomb and that bomb's called AI and that bomb's called encryption. And that bomb is called, you know, public key cryptography and blockchain. And so now how do we run this world when everybody's got the bomb and everybody's a supercomputer? So, wow. Pound that like button, everybody. <laughs> that, that was more than I expected. And it is, it is so true. It is, it's such a great, way of looking at the world. Personal responsibility is a new counterculture, people. Okay, it's a scary freaking world. Learn to take care of yourself. But I, I do agree that there's a there's this glorious decentralization here. And uh, I, 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 what I also see is more than ever, people are so willing. 40 years after 1984 was supposed to take place, we have people begging, crying for a comfortable dystopia, okay? It is it is a popular, uh, I mean, if you're running uh, for uh, office in Canada, I think it's a, a popular stand to take. I'm going to I'm gonna take care of you. I mean, I, I'm not in Canada right now, but maybe you can, uh, it's, I don't think it is as if uh, the general population is not as uh, freedom uh, respecting or loving as, as those of us in America. Uh, I, I, it was very sad to see what happened during the virus there. Uh, uh, very, very shocking indeed. And uh, obviously you ha had many takes on that. But uh, I see a world of many people clamoring for government intrusion. And uh, I, 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 I mean, you in the end, I mean, don't you see people being just comfortably happy with CBDCs and just totally believing everything the government tells them about it and really vilifying uh, Bitcoin? Yeah, absolutely. I call it the the coming monetary apartheid where, um, you know, you're going to have basically those who hold their wealth outside of the coming CBD system and those who are inside it. Uh, a huge component of those people inside the system are going to want to be there. They're going to enjoy to be there. And, um, you know, I always what I speculate is going to happen is, again, with these things, these are not only like supercomputers in your pocket that are empowering. They're also like surveillance mechanisms that can completely enslave you. It's again, it's how you react to it and what you do with it. Um, your life will be gamified in your phone. Right. And then your implant, you know, not long after that. 
and uh, people will be like, you know, these little pretty graphics will happen on screen and an NFT will explode when you cut your meat consumption to a certain level or when you euthanize your dog for global warming and stuff like that. And uh, and a certain component of people are going to be like all in on that because, again, they want something to be taking care of them. And uh, I, I think and maybe this is my my maybe it's naive but i'm an optimistic but i think it's going to be largely self-selecting this monetary apartheid like even if you wind up on the wrong side of this out of circumstance and i say that anyone who's going to be economically reliant on the government for ubi for welfare for entitlements if you rely on the state for your economic sustenance you're going to be captured within the cbd system let's say you get there at first and you're stuck in that system what i hope for is a world where um still in this day and age in the west at least in in g20 nations if you really want to improve your lot in life you have the ability to do so and i think people who get captured inside the cbdc system will have the ability if they you know to get out of that system what i worry about is a non-porous membrane between the haves and have-nots uh, where you're just sort of stuck on one side or the other. And no matter how badly you screw up, if you're an elite, you get bailed out. And no matter how hard you apply yourself, if you're a, a digital surf, you can't get through that membrane. I think the only shot we have at uh, something that sort of resembles a just society, not that it's just, is that those who those who apply themselves can break through that membrane and those who who don't take responsibility for themselves fall into the other side of it i don't again i don't think this is a desirable state of affairs i just think that's where we're headed and i don't think it's going to be permanent i, mean, I think it's going to last you know less than i don't know i hate to speculate because things are moving at an accelerating rate but at some point it all shakes out and then we have to sort of rebuild um, on the other side of this. But I think that's sort of the the trough we have to slog through on the way there is this monetary apartheid. I brilliant uh, term there. I, I really it really wakes people up. Now, uh, what one reason that I, I it, it's you know we, we could tear it apart a little bit because some of the people you know in in a regular apartheid it's it's totally being forced. It is just going to be amazing how many people volunteer for this thing. Mm, yeah, for, for the reasons you said. That's and and it will be interesting to see how non-porous the uh, membrane is for some people. I think it's going to depend on what jurisdiction they're in. Um, yeah, I think in the United States, there's going to be no excuse unless you just want to be a complete welfare slave. Which I guess, I mean, it'll be very tempting to, uh, you know, the the UBI and, and, and all of that stuff. But it, it won't be like they won't be able to get into Bitcoin. I think. Uh, We've already uh, uh, crossed the Rubicon in terms of uh, that option is going to be out there for everyone. It's it's been you know, the the ETF has really made it uh, okay with many. I mean, if, if Elizabeth Warren became president, we could have some major issues, I guess. Um, but we're, we're we're not there yet. But uh, we're, you're you're talking about some pretty extreme uh, situations where people are totally 100% unable to get to Bitcoin. Uh, and that's going to really take a, a repressive government. If yeah. the United States was like that, the whole world would already, already be like that. We would be literally living in 1984 at that point. Um, so uh, it, if it, they it, can't, if they can't ban, sorry to interrupt, if they can't ban Bitcoin or access to Bitcoin 100% in China, then I don't know any any place where it can happen. I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe nobody in North Korea is stacking sats, but I'll bet you there's a few hodlers there too. What you said about China is what I would generally answer the question as to if 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 China can't do it, uh, these it would take a much smaller version of China, which I guess is North Korea. But they're not. A th There's always going to be problems with a corrupt, horrifying country like that where people are going to be able to get through uh, a, just a little bit. Now, with with this in mind, the 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 apartheid and everything. What do you think here in the Western world? Where we have people in our in our space in the Bitcoin space that call for the the SEC to clamp down on uh, other cryptocurrencies by calling them securities, 
I mean, for me, there's no principle behind it for these guys that say that there's freedom. I mean, I, I want to talk about the principle of, uh, you know, government intrusion. If you're against government intrusion, you should be against it all the time. So, 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 so what is, what do you think about this? Uh, I mean, it goes to a broader uh, topic in this space where people are so tribal when it comes to Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, you, you, I mean, it doesn't amaze you that this is the first time in the history of mankind where people have become tribal around currency. It, it, that's quite fascinating. Well, I think so. I, I'll preface it by saying I think about Bitcoin in different terms than I think about cryptocurrencies. And I'm not. And, and while I make sort of references to myself as a Bitcoin maxi, because I think Bitcoin is is the one the one preeminent uh, digital asset. I, I mean, my newsletter was originally called the Crypto Capitalist, right? I rebranded as the Bitcoin Capitalist because of just all of the the messes with like FTX and all of that and Celsius. But um, I don't think it's necessarily the end of the world for a crypto project to be designated as a security, right? Because I, I think of them differently, where I think of Bitcoin as like a base layer, a protocol level dial tone for this new um, environment we're in. Uh, crypto projects are more like companies or businesses or, or investment projects that are doing their own thing. And so that's sort of like an application built on top of this base layer. So one's a commodity. Bitcoin is being treated more like a commodity and and, and there's a reason why. And, and, and I think that works well for Bitcoin and it works well for the argument of like true decentralization. But if a crypto project is designated a security, like who cares? It's designated as a security. If I take my company public, I'm going to be a security, right? And I've got to file some paperwork and I have to adhere to a certain set of rules and, and like, yeah, that's it. That's the way the system works. What's the, you know, it's not the end of the world. Now, you know, it brings a, a level of regulatory burden onto a lot of these projects. But, you know, I've been telling my readers for years, it's like, this is not like, you don't just magically press a button and become an anarcho-capitalist utopia. Like that's just not going to happen. We still have legal systems. We still have regulations. We actually want legal systems and regulations. I think we want rule of law. You want to know that everybody's playing by the same rules. I think where we sort of get into trouble is, is um, where where regu you know policymakers, regulators, and govern and governments are supposed to be acting like referees, but they're acting like saviors and nannies, and and that's where we're running into problems. But if you just say, hey, look, here's a set of rules called securities law, and it basically says things like um, if you're going to issue yourselves a bunch of units to yourselves before you sell this to the public at large, you have to disclose that and you have to publish the terms on which you're doing it and, and everything like that. If you're going to, you know, have some market moving news coming out, you have to, you have to file it publicly before you act on it privately. Like what's wrong with anything like that? That's basically like, you know, an offside rule in hockey or basketball. It makes sense. And nobody's disputing the logic of these rules. So, you know, cryptos are securities. Yeah. So what? Bitcoin's a commodity. Amen. Okay. Like, let's get on with this. Yeah. But, but the thing that I, I do not like is that first, there's no clarity right now. Like they're leading these other uh, coins on or whatever. I mean, just, just say it, just do it. It's like they're picking winners and losers, and then there are people in our space that like that. They want some to be winners and some, you know, revenge on this one. Get get this one. Yeah, get, I mean that's that's the difference between the referee and the nanny, right? Yes. The referee, a good impartial referee, just calls them as he sees them, and then the nanny is like picking and choosing at what's best for you. <laughs> and that is called economic fascism when yeah. the government picks winners and losers. Just want to throw that out there for everybody. Um, it's, you know, you could, you could tie that into stakeholder capitalism. Also, <laughs> it's the same, same way, you know, you ambiguously decide who a stakeholder is and it's, it's just Klaus Schwab, really. He, yeah. he, 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 he's, his, he's the stakeholder. So he gets to say how you run your, there's no private property anymore. I mean, that's a yeah. lack of respect for private property is, is amazing how it, it continues to grow 
in this world of ads. By the way, Mark is linked to below his website, his Twitter. Follow him. Obviously a unique beast. Pound that like button, everyone. All right. Um, on another show that you were on, I think it was a Canadian uh, Bitcoin show. I, I believe you started to talk about uh, Brian Armstrong and uh, Coinbase. And I, I think we had some uh, common uh, agreements there. What, what, what do you think about what Coinbase does and, and about Brian Armstrong as an entrepreneur? Yeah, that would that would have been the Canadian Bitcoiners podcast. Uh, shout out to those guys, uh, Len and Joey. Great, uh, great duo. Great show. Um, yeah, I, I lo- I'm long Coinbase. I I broke one of my own investment rules and bought them on IPO day, but I continued to buy them all the way down. So um, it's not as lopsided for me now. I think Coinbase. I mean, my shorthand for them is they're the Amazon of crypto. I've always liked them and I find the bearish thesis on Coinbase is is a little comical because I think people just continue to look at one aspect of their business, which is which is the crypto exchange. And they say, oh, Robin Hood is going to eat their lunch. Citadel is going to eat their lunch. Like all these companies that have no depth in this new world are going to eat their lunch somehow. Meanwhile, what's Coinbase doing? Coinbase, for one thing, has ensconced themselves into the regulatory framework of blockchain and crypto. Like if there's, you know, if at the end of all this, let's say Liz Warren gets more than one out of 320 bills through and it's a bad crypto bill, Coinbase is going to be the only legal exchange in America. And who wouldn't want to own a piece of that? I don't think it's going to get to that. But, you know, Coinbase is up on Capitol Hill arguing on on behalf of the entire space every time one of these things comes out and they don't get enough light for that nobody gives them credit for that paul gruel regularly kicks the crap out of the sec in court makes them look like retards right on a regular basis no one gives them credit for that coinbase is building their own layer two on base and they're not tokenizing it so the biggest argument against a lot of crypto projects is oh they're just you know bleep coiners they're just sort of creating their own token and 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 coinbase isn't going to do that but when you look at their stretch goal for what base is trying to do one second one transaction one cent when you understand what they're trying to do and think and then do some math about what if they get you know base operating at like an ach level of transactions per second or a visa level of throughput it's just going to be dizzying what that company can do with base and you know they've got all the etf custodies except one fidelity because they built their own they're just they're everywhere when the u.s government tries to dispose of bitcoin that they've seized in like you know drug busts or whatever they do it through coinbase like it's just these guys have such a depth of knowledge of the industry that I just find, like I say, most of the arguments against them are laughable. I don't understand the hostility towards them, but I welcome it because I love being a contrarian. So just keep that hate on Coinbase and we'll just keep going long and strong. Do you think, you know, on a crypto Twitter, Bitcoin Twitter, do you think it's uh, it stems from lack of experience of some of these young guys that they're just envious of, of Brian. I mean, what, what, what gives here? I, I see it as an incredible level of hate toward this dude was I was around in 2013 and you got to give this guy all the credit in the world. He stepped up to the plate and, and, you know, had this dream of becoming the, uh, the Amazon of crypto or whatever you want to, before it was, you know, even it was, it was just, a, it was just a dream. He, he worked hard and, uh, it was it, it provided, you know, instead of people wiring money to freaking Mount Gox in Japan, you could buy it easily just through a, a company in San Francisco. It was it was so easy. So where what do you think about the end? I mean, I'm, do you think there's envy in the space and uh, or just lack of experience? Just a, a bunch of young guys that have never worked. in there. You're an entrepreneur. So uh, tell us your perspective. Yeah, I mean, uh, Coinbase came up through Y Combinator, which is a very highly respected incubator in the software space. Uh, Paul Graham, he's been an easy DNS customer for like since the beginning. And uh, so just watching that 
entity from afar is just like, oh my, these guys are just really like every stripe came out of Y Combinator. All kinds of things come out of Y Combinator. Coinbase came out of Y Combinator. And when I saw that, I realized again that depth of knowledge in the space that they had that, you know, these these Wall Street monstrosities like Citadel, who had to get bailed out during GameStop, like, you know, privately. Uh, they just they just cannot compete at that level. I think so, like it or not, the zeitgeist today, and I think it's shifting, but I've been wrong about this for a long time. It's kind of a little, you know, I'll just say it's a little it's a tad left of center, right? So we're kind of like there's a little bit, there's a smidge of wokeness, especially in San Francisco and in the tech sector. And uh, Brian Armstrong and Coinbase, they're not woke and they committed you know, probably a original sin, which was they told they they sort of culled their employees, they thinned the herd by saying, if you want to do all of this, like social justice, personal causes and stuff, you should do it on your time, not on company time, we're not going to embrace all of these causes left, right and center. Maybe you should take this package and go. And so they offered a percent, they offered their workforce deals to just leave. Many did, I think 10 or 15% of the workforce left. And I think that was the hinge moment when Coinbase, I just noticed an uptick in hit pieces and negativity directed towards Coinbase in the mainstream media. Um, you know, I think they made themselves a target. I applaud them for doing it because they do what a lot of tech CEOs are probably, you know, thinking privately, but maybe afraid to say publicly. And I think that's what fuels a lot of this hostility is like, oh, he's not. Brian Armstrong is not left wing. He's not woke. Well, there, there was something else you mentioned. Yeah, the, 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 the well, venture capital funding. Let, let's let's tie that into here. Why? And, and the zeitgeist that we're living through today. Uh, it seems like class warfare, hating the rich, hating the producers is cool. It's fine. I mean, you can name names. You could be Elizabeth Warren and you could say, I'm targeting Elon Musk. And that can be cool. I mean, a, a, I mean, elected government official, you know, target, I mean, this is, it, it seems like something from Russia or something like that. But uh, what in our space, in the Bitcoin space, what, what's your take? Not the, I mean, not just the mainstream media, but I mean, regular guys. What, why the hate toward venture capital? Why the vilification of venture capital? I, I, I mean, it's like people think it's wrong to make a profit. People think you have to be altruistic to, to get into Bitcoin. What, what's wrong with making money? I mean, it's like you can't say I got into Bitcoin because I wanted to become rich or I wanted to preserve my wealth. You can't say that. Which I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah, I mean that's why I sort of bill myself as an unrepentant capitalist. And and then, and even you know the hyper successful ones like even the Warren Buffetts and, and Buffett and value investing and I love value investing. I consider myself a value investor, but there's this ethos there of like you got to make a big pile of money, but you can't actually enjoy any of that money. Right. You get you got to like walk around in a potato sack and you've got to like eat, you know, eat TV dinners and live in like the crappy house that you bought in 1940. It's like, hey, you know, I don't have to if I live like that. Why do I have to work super hard to make all this money and live like that? I could just be broke and live like that. And then I'll have a lot more spare time. So I really don't you know, the whole point of working hard and, and striving to get ahead is that so you can have a nice house so you can send your kids to a private school instead of this nightmare public system um vc i've never taken vc because it sort of my you know i don't begrudge vcs other than in this era of cheap money like fake money fiat money going the vc route sort of changes the dynamic of your company so you're not actually trying to be profitable anymore. I, we used to joke, I mean, EasyDNS has been around since 1998 and we came up during the dot-com boom and our joke used to be, we make money the old fashioned way at a profit, okay? Because once you take VC, profits are out the window. 
right? Uh, Jason Freed from Basecamp used to joke about this. Like, you know, we get, we go for a funding round, but we're too profitable. So no one's giving us the valuation. You take VC and suddenly your business model isn't about taking, you know, turning the profit anymore. It's just about entering into this long pipeline of serial funding events, all up rounds. And then at the end, there's some terminal event like a monster acquisition or an IPO. At no point are you making any profit. You're just gobbling mind share, gobbling market share, selling at a loss. That's always been my historical beef against VCs in the sense that I've got to compete with this company over here that's got 300 million in VC in the bank, Super Bowl ads, and they're selling at a loss. And I don't want to go that route. And so I have to turn a profit. And that's my beef with VCs. But that said, I do not begrudge people for wanting to become wealthy. I do not begrudge people for wanting to enjoy the fruits of their wealth as long as they do it ethically. And I find that, you know, um, accumulating wealth and becoming materially better off, what you what you do is you you do that most successfully by making as many people around you as wealthy as possible, right? And uh, maybe that's the one sort of ethos you could take away from those hyper-rich people like the Warren Buffetts is like, you know, he would just empower his managers to run their subsidiaries and they would become wealthy and he would by proxy. Um, and you, and you, and, and then at the end of the day, the way capitalism is supposed to work, even at the base layer of a transaction is both parties have to derive mutual benefit. That's the alchemy. That's how you get more from, from what you start with is when both sides get more, they finish the transaction better off than they started. That's the, the alchemy of capitalism. And then you multiply that and you iterate that and you're basically providing values. That's the way it should ultimately work. I think uh, one takeaway uh, from uh, the, the, the VC stuff, I think I think it's great that people, if, if that's the way they're going to uh, get funding, then let them get funding that way. What's been lost, and I think what you uh, reminded us of, of, is that there are a lot of young people that get in the business. They think they just want to flip. They just want to come up with an idea, flip it to a VC. They don't care if it's profitable. Back in the day, before all this big VC money, you did it the old-fashioned way. You made a profit. You, you created. You created that. It's that basic uh, monetary principle of just making a profit in order to fund the growth of your business, not doing it through any uh, debt mechanisms, has has been forgotten by by so many young people. And with that in mind, uh, amazingly enough, you know, we could say the dot com boom was in nineteen ninety eight. That's now uh, 26 years ago. So we have people in our space that weren't even born then. Yeah. Um, so it has been forgotten. So when you start talking about the dot com, you might not even realize it now, but you are uh, uh, giving a perspective uh, that a lot of people have no clue about now that are that are key, that are big players in this space. So uh, very quick, uh, the, the, the uh, compare and contrast the dot com era to to Bitcoin and and how much bigger and maybe how much faster this is going to happen. Because they were, they, they, that was spread out. And it, it took a while to get from Netscape to social media, really, to social media being dominant. I mean, you, you could say that was from like uh, 1995 to uh, 2010. That, that's quite some time. Uh, I mean, I personally think in, in the fifth, you know, Bitcoin is going to grow, a, or, you know, you can call it cryptocurrency. I, and yes, I do understand the difference between cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, but we're, we're going to have to admit there are going to be all these other digital assets out there. But the space is going to, I, I think because of the internet base level that was built in, you know, 1998, those days during the dot-com boom, that uh, this boom, uh, this life-altering, world-changing moment uh, can happen faster. So a uh, quick compare and contrast to the two eras. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so I got my first internet job, I think in 1994, I was working for one of Toronto's first dial-up ISPs called InfoRampNet. So I'm truly dating myself there. And um, well, it's, it's also very important to, to point out what the first internet companies were, how like yeah. basic it shows. So just everybody that's like, Dude, you this Bitcoin is going to get so much more complex. Then we're going to laugh at this stuff one day. But continue. You know, we, we don't. We, there's going to 
right now we're working on dial-up type of stuff that's going to be totally yeah. out of date in five years. But yeah, I mean, definitely so. It's still very, you know, in, in 1998 or 2000, I was I was at a friend's place who was actually the founder of of Toronto's first dial-up ISP. And he was showing me this new software application that could load what he called a web page. I think it was, it must've been 95. It was called Mosaic. Right. And, and uh, it was like this really cool thing. And he said, you know, we're, we're in the Edison stage right now. Right. And this was the mid nineties. Um, what um, I was going to say something, I lost my train of thought, but I will, I will point out that. You were saying what your first job was. At first yeah. When, when I got wind of the internet, right. I was destined. I took computer programming at, uh, you know, Fanshawe college in London, Ontario. And I was headed for doing Y2K maintenance programming on COBOL mainframes. Right. And uh, suddenly I got wind of the, uh, of the internet. Uh, long story. I don't want to go on the tangent here. And, and um, I just almost stumbled upon it by picking up a copy of Mondo 2000 magazine in a bookshop on the way to school one day. And I was walking around Toronto broke, you know, um, didn't have two pennies to rub together. And I had no idea how I was going to do it, but I used to lose sleep pacing around going, how am I going to break into this industry? How am I going to get into this business? I don't even know where it is. I don't know who in Toronto is in this business. And there was this excitement about it that I just knew it was going to be big. I knew it was just going to change the entire world. So to hell with Y2K COBOL maintenance, right? Anyway, so I managed to, I managed to fortunately and with gratitude get into the business and i saw a lot of things come and go since then right big point cast and push technology and and all this stuff all these fads came and went uh, and and it wasn't until actually uh it took me till 2013 to discover bitcoin actually i missed it for five years and uh that was the next time I ever had that feeling again. It was like it, I recognized it instantly. It was like this is the exact same thing that I went through in 1993, 1994, and I found myself – fortunately, I was in a different position. So I wasn't like walking around with like, you know, on a budget, you know, of like, enough to buy a pack of cigarettes and a king can of beer and a slice of pizza, which is what I was living on in like 1993. Now I had a, I had a company. And so I started sponsoring let's talk Bitcoin. And I met, you know, Adam and, and, uh, and, and um, Stephanie and, and uh, Andreas and, and became great friends with them. And it was like, I knew it was going to be big. Like the moment I looked at it now, the pace, right. The most important book I think I ever read was Alvin Toffler's Future Shock, which came out in 1970, and I didn't read it until I was maybe 20 years old, right, 1990. And it basically said that um, the biggest thing that uh, the future generations were going to have to get used to was the increasing pace of change, right? So what happened, what took, what took the internet, uh, what, you know, 20 years to do, uh, is happening in like two having cycles in, in Bitcoin. Right? Yes. And, um, it's just, and then what comes after Bitcoin? I don't know. I'm still trying to keep up with this one. Right. But well, I mean, I, it's amazing. AI is, is, yeah. AI and then nanotechnology yeah. and then who knows. Right. It, it's awesome. So yeah, I agree with the paces of it, it's such an exciting time to be alive with, to see the pace picking up like this of all sorts of cool technologies. So do you think the opportunity is greater now for a young person uh, than it was uh, back then? Uh, 100%, okay. 100%. I mean, so I tell my readers, I'll, I'll, I'll go the, through this quickly. So there was this book I read um, in the early 90s that um, I sort of, um, it's, it, it helped refine my approach, like as a business, like to become a business owner. And it was like, you know, what self-made millionaires think, say, and do, right? And it basically, you know, I said, you can sum up the book in three words, own a business, right? 
But when you read the book, he says, you do this, you follow this framework, you may have a full-time job now, you can't quit, that's fine. It'll take you seven years to become a self-made millionaire. And if you really hustle and, and grind, you can probably do it in five, okay? I think in this day and age, right, if you can read, you you have the tools available to you for free. Actually, you don't even have to read if you've got YouTube. You can probably do it in three years, right? And some people, you got you hear these Cinderella stories about these people who do it in like 18 months. It's just never been more possible to build a business, even a kitchen table business, even a side hustle and turn it into a six or seven figure, you know, entity that you could just keep or sell or, you know. Yeah, it, 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 it is amazing. Uh, uh, do you, hang on, did we lose connection here for a second? I noticed something changed with my my camera. I don't know if I bumped exactly, my no, no, we're, we're good. We'll, we'll, we'll keep pursuing. Sorry for the technical difficulties there. Yeah. Uh, I do want to say what you said about the the feeling that you had. It's the same dot com feeling that yet a lot of people who are around then say it's the same thing. Like this is yeah. they just know it in their gut that is it is revolutionary. Now, if we're talking about the the the, the, the pace of change uh, picking up, uh, let's go back to economics real quick with the uh, United States dollar. I I strongly feel from my travels around the world. And just having some experience that the, the U.S. dollar will, will, will remain the world reserve currency. I don't think Bitcoin will become the world reserve. It's the world reserve uh, cryptocurrency, but I don't think it will become the world reserve currency. I think actually that the United States CBDC will strengthen its position as the world reserve currency. I think that the BRICS are basically a joke other than China. Um, I mean, people, where do people try to move? Do they try to move to South Africa? Do they try to move to India? Or do they try to move to the United States and the West? What I mean, what's going on here? So what do you, but there are so many in our space that seem to just, you want America to be depicted as the uh, most evil entity in the history of mankind and that it is going to fall. This will be glorious. Everyone will adopt Bitcoin and maybe, and the bricks are a glorious threat. Who cares about the dictators? Who cares about the poverty? Who cares about people trying to get the heck out of those uh, third world? You know what? No, no, no. Yeah, it's the USA. So what's your take on the BRICS? What's your take on, on, on the vibe, the, the uh, anti-Western vibe among some people in our space? And, and, but, but, and uh, world reserve currency and the United States dollar. I'm going to break out that into two things, right? USD, USA, all right? Two separate things. Um, for the USA, I'll, I'll say I, it's always astonished me how much my own thinking on this has evolved over the years, right? I used to be this left-wing Canadian, like uh, America is an evil empire, and uh, my biggest fear was that uh, America would someday invade Canada and take us over for our resources, and I now think if you set aside um, the sort of prevailing governance of both countries, I actually think the smart next level move is for Canada and America to merge. Yes. And as much as, yeah, as much as I like, don't like centralization and I know that there's sort of like a dissonance there between centralization and the idea of a North American merger, I think, well, you know what, if you actually, took the construct of the original U.S. Constitution, where it was really 50 decentralized sovereign states, and applied it to, to North America, um, you would have a global powerhouse, right? Right there. I mean, and then, and then just the real politic of today's world with an ascendant China and Russia looking out for their own interests. I mean, I understand why China and Russia are doing what they're doing because it's just sort of like it's rational self-interest. They're not by any stretch of the imagination, libertarian utopias. I mean, they're dictatorships, they're, they're authoritarians. You have no real civil rights there. So let's, let's make no, you know, mistake. The place that, enshrines at least in theory civil rights and freedom and personal freedom is you know united states you know um uh 
life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Canada, it's like peace, order, and good government, right? It kind of shows you the, the difference between the two mottos. But, um, you know, I actually think that um, if you, the, 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 the original ethos of the U.S. Constitution is, is a marvelous thing, it's, we've never seen anything like it. If we can get back to that, that would be great. Um, on the dollar, I mean, if you're in the software industry or the software as a service or infrastructure in business like I am, you understand long tails and you understand how long it takes for something to decline to zero, right? So the US dollar, you're right. I mean, you go to Congo, you go to South America, you go someplace and like, you know, in some places they want Bitcoin, but like the US dollar is going to get you pretty well anything you want. The Canadian dollar, like they won't even recognize it. And that's going to happen for a long time. But they are devaluing the thing towards zero. So that's number one. And that's been in play since 1970. And stable coins and CBDCs give a way for all of these central banks to sort of add a couple extra decades of runway onto these melting ice cubes. So that's going to happen. But the other thing is, I'll tell you why my opinion on, on Bit, where Bitcoin fits in all this change. The other thing is the, the US dollar, um, two things happened in 2022. The United States government weaponized its dollar against foreign reserve holdings, and the Canadian government weaponized its banking system against its citizens, right? Those two things happened fairly close to each other. And when that happened, that changed my opinion on where Bitcoin was headed. So before that, I always thought Bitcoin will never be a world reserve currency, and it will never be part of a new you know, Bretton Woods sequel, it will never be part of a new monetary system layer. I used to think of Bitcoin as a German term called Notgelt. And if you've seen, like I say this on a few different podcasts, Notgelt is, is a word that translates roughly to emergency money. Every hyperinflation has an emergency money, right? In uh, Weimar, Germany, cities were printing their own script. In Zimbabwe, it was prepaid phone cards and gas cards, right? Um, and I said Bitcoin was a global note gelt against a global high inflation, hyperinflationary wave that's coming. And I thought that's all it will ever be, right? It'll be important. It'll be around forever. But it's always going to be this informal note gelt. After those two events, after the U.S. weaponized its, its status as a, a reserve currency, and after a G7 country like Canada weaponized its banking system, I said, okay, now Bitcoin is something completely different now. And it probably, it's a stretch to think it will ever be a world reserve currency, but someday there's going to be this like, okay, all the finance ministers got together, all the central banks got together, we're creating this new thing. And this thing is this new monetary base layer, and it's got these national currencies and it's got these SDRs and it's got these tons of gold and it's got this component of Bitcoin and it's going to be like part of the plumbing. And I think that's where it's headed. Okay. Part, part, part of the plumbing. I like that. I like that. Uh, I, I want to go back to uh, when you said Canada and the United States merging. Uh, so I support uh, Alberta, at least, uh, seceding and joining the United States. Do you like that idea? They, I, I don't see them leaving on their own to join the U.S. They would just go it alone if they do. And thanks really? to Trudeau, like, you know, Canada has spent the last, like, 70 years trying to keep Quebec into confederation because they're incessantly threatening to separate. And now, like, Alberta is going to be gone within, like, you know, all it'll take is one more liberal administration. It won't be the next time because they'll lose. But after that, th that'll be the end of Alberta. Job well done, you know, liberals. Yeah. You've destroyed Confederation in record time. Well, I want to recommend for uh, everybody watching that to visit Alberta is my favorite province up there. I mean, really freedom-oriented people. Really a good – it's like the te Texas of Canada in, in, in a certain way. Uh, in, in a certain way. Uh, yeah, you, you have to you have to experience it definitely. It's it's uh, during the summer, obviously. It's uh, hard. Yeah, shout out to uh, Corey Morgan out there. I did his audio book, The Sovereignist's Handbook, 
um, which uh, so it's the whole blueprint on Alberta sovereignty. Well, let, let's conclude with another country here, and that is uh, the situation in Argentina. Mm-hmm. And many, I was excited about it before he was elected because he talked about, I mean, he's separation of money and state. Separation of money and state, that's, that's the first step right there. That really is an awesome thing. He says the right things. He, he has principles. He, he has economic knowledge. A lot of Bitcoiners um, tell me they want to move to El Salvador. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I'm just like, dudes, be patient. Maybe you should visit Argentina first and uh, see how it goes if, if, if you're so uh, keen on leaving North America. Because first of all, El Salvador, I compare the leader to the leader of Argentina. And I don't want to pedestal anyone, but I really think, again, in, in our space, it has become so cultish. Uh, and, and so there's been a cult built around this dude from El Salvador who makes uh, Bitcoin trades uh, for his country when he's sitting on the toilet. Now, you, you compare that to Millet in Argentina, who has a plan, a real legitimate plan, not just volcanoes and, you know, this, that and the other. But you know, it, it's just to me, it's apples and oranges. So I don't know if you want to c- compare the two, but what do you take? What's, what's your take on what's going on in Argentina? Well, they've had so many currency collapses there that they, you know, it, it's it's nice to see someone come in who says, like, we can't have this anymore right i mean they put out a hundred year bond a hundred year bond in in what like 2017 or something like that and they had to restructure it within three years like it was just like ridiculous i tell a story in the crypto capitalist manifesto about um we found an account on the system that kept pre-funding its its balance in in credits in our system like they paid they prepaid their website out to like 2085 and we're like what's going on with this customer and i email him he turns out to be an argentine who's putting like half of his paycheck into like prepaid easy dns credits every paycheck because he found it to be a better store of value than the peso and i'm like you you can't do that because we're not a bank but that's the situation there. Right? We became the Notgeld for this guy, right? So, you know, some people give um, hostility to Malay, Malay uh, because he wants to peg to the U.S. dollar. And I just see that as like a tactical move to sort of, you know, get get some bearing, to get a ballast on the economy there because they've, they've destroyed their currency. Like they just these serial devaluations and and hyperinflationary events. You've got to start there. Yeah. Right. Um, he's also you know introduced legislation that made it a lot more uh, Bitcoin friendly as well. He hasn't gone the El Salvador route. I will. I will say making Bitcoin legal tender in El Salvador did a lot for the space. And so you may have issues with Bukele and, you know, some of the people around him, there's, you know, there's some questionable um, undercurrents there, but at least it happened. It stuck a flag in the ground. I actually, you know, what he did rounding up all the gangs, I can sort of see the, the, the sort of uh, pragmatism behind it, but it is kind of a, it is, you know, it's a civil rights fail, like no trials. You just hurt a bunch of people into prison because they have tattoos. I mean, I know you probably got 99.9% accuracy on that, but the fact remains, like, can you just do that if that happened in Canada, if that happened in Utah, like we'd have issues. So, um, you know, props to just making the move to make Bitcoin legal tender. But, you know, maybe what's happening in Argentina is a bit more measured and methodical and has a has a longer term chance at succeeding because it's just a little more uh, thought through. I mean, people are freaking out because he went to the he went to the Davos no, meeting. And it's like, you know, I don't think you've truly made it in this world until you're called control op, controlled opposition and a psyop. Right. Until then, you're a, you're an also ran. That's a, that's a very good point, though. In this uh, crazy paranoid world that we live in, uh, yeah, you're not you're not real until they uh, accuse you of being part of some uh, conspiracy. That, that you know. But uh, no, no, very good. There is some long term thinking going. I, I think that's the point. I think Argentina, the situation is more long term thinking. There, it was more impulsive. Hey, but no, it was big. It, it took Bitcoin to another level by uh, making it. Someone had to be the first 
to make it uh, the, uh, the legal tender. Someone had to be the first. And and speaking again of Argentina, you have to start somewhere. You can't just be like total uh, total financial anarchy now. Just the whole country would come apart. I mean, the first step is dollarization. It's it's fine. It's it, he's got a plan. He's got a. There's a there was an old again I'm dating myself. There was a band, a punk band called the New York Dolls, and they had an album called "Too Much Too Soon," <laughs> right? And and I and I I love that phrase, and that phrase has been more important in this day and age. Like what happened under COVID was too much too soon, and I actually think that plays out in favor of the liberty movement because um it really accelerated it was the acceleration event of the century so we saw where we were headed because it was too much too soon and if they would have dribbled and drabbled that out over 20 years we would have just sort of all slept walked into it but then we saw it it just was like shock shock and awe and it was like okay too much too soon we don't want this and there's a lot more liberty-minded people now because yeah, of yeah, I think that's the conclusion. There's a lot more liberty-minded people now, but do the north there's still plenty of 80 percenters who are as blind as they've ever been. What happened with the trucker convoy should have been the ultimate wake-up for Bitcoin that they tried to send them money every which way got shut down except for Bitcoin. From that was just such a huge it was a huge moment for me. I, and I know it did wake some people up, but it should have been the biggest darn story of the year in so many ways that a country as supposedly free as Canada was shutting down bank accounts like China. I mean, this is and the only way to get around it was this thing called Bitcoin. I mean, that's okay, let's, let, let's let's dive into this a little bit. Um, I got a little bit of time, so I don't have a hard stop at 12. But I think the Freedom Convoy was far more successful than people give it credit for. Uh, that was the beginning of the end of COVID tyranny, for one thing. Okay, by the time the COVID, by the time the Freedom Convoy was over and done, uh, lockdowns were over within a year. Vaccine mandates were over within a year. Similar movements broke out all over the world, and when the government did try to seize the bank accounts of uh, people who contributed to the Freedom Convoy and the truckers' bank accounts, they almost crashed the banking system. I mean, that goes really underreported. I mean, it was covered on Zero Hedge, and I don't know anywhere else, right, that all of the banking, all of the online banks went offline around the same time. And then, you know, within days, the government sort of walked it back. And that was the cover for that was like mission accomplished. You know, Henry Kissinger's famous line, declare victory and withdraw. What really happened was the Senate wasn't going to pass it. The banking system was in danger of crashing. And they basically had to back down and put a brave face on. So that was a complete and total victory for the truckers. And it was the beginning of the end of COVID tyranny. And, and now with this latest federal court decision yesterday ruling the whole thing, unconstitutional and illegal uh it's complete vindication so I, I like to hand it to the truckers yeah yeah and, uh, and, and, Benjamin uh, is great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That, i mean that's the reason i i know you is because of because of him because of all of that so i mean that's that's a very that is a very good take on the situation very positive take uh, for me just i just wish more people would would know would understand it in, in america really uh fully understand it but uh no 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 it, it was it's it's a great spark and things you know i guess the zeitgeist did change a little bit uh after that to, to say the least to say the least. and and now well i mean we'll see can they i mean i guess this is a good conclusion uh conclusionary uh question what happened during uh, the virus will will governments attempt to pull it off again and in will they be able to pull it off in Canada? Will they be able to pull it off in the United States? Will they be able to pull it off only in certain countries? Uh, so, I mean, I always kind of bristle internally when I when I when people are like, "Will they do this? Will they do this?" Not you, just in general, right? right? I don't think they are going to do anything um, because I don't think they did anything. Uh, COVID was a lab leak 
I don't think it was intentional. I mean, that's just what I think. Well, I mean, the government, the, go the, the governments will be able to pull off these authoritarian moves. That oh, just no, I really don't think so. Uh, not maybe not for unless they sort of like let everyone go back to sleep for another 10 years and try it like a long time from now, maybe. But I, they, if they, you know, people are like, oh, disease X is going to be unleashed this year. Like, no, people are going to tell the government. Well, that, that, that's what I'm saying. There's going to be another disaster of some sort. I, and it'll be natural or whatever it doesn't matter. I don't say I don't think they're going to create. No one's going to create a disaster. We have disasters. Real governments take the opportunity again to end. You know the class robs of the world to take advantage. You never you have to take advantage of a, a disaster. What's it called? What's the, uh, the never problem? let a good crisis go to never waste. let a good crisis go to waste seems to be. I mean, that was taken to an extreme in 2020, okay? They and will Klaus, And Klaus, the World Economic Forum even admits it. This is the time for a reset. This is the time for no conspiracies at all. They said this is the time for an economic reset. Will the next so-called disaster that will be hyped up by the media because they make money off of hyping up disasters, will some countries be able to take authoritarian control? I don't think it can work in the United States again because we have 50 separate – I think in certain states it might – work more than others but people more people will leave i don't know about canada that's why i'm asking you um but uh i think it's like in certain countries sure the, the dictators will become bigger dictators here i think the people are there's enough people maybe 20 percent of people will would violently rebel if they had to i mean that threat would be legitimate i don't say to do anything like that but i think they will try um a government like canada if it's still like you know a left-wing coalition like we have now would certainly try whether the conservatives um, who talk a good game now when the proof is put to the test you know will they stay with it they'll try i mean governments will try governments have one 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 move in the playbook right print well two moves print money and exert control so yeah that's a given but will the population acquiesce the way they did last time i don't think so I, I really don't think so i think i think the people who are like ideologically aligned with that kind of subservience are actually a minority and i think during covid people because of the whole cancel culture zeitgeist people were afraid to say you know what this is kind of bs i'm not really on side with this i don't really believe it I don't really care who who thinks I'm I'm a nutcase for not believing it. They didn't feel safe to say it, and now it's it's practically fashionable to say it now. So I think it happens again anytime in the next few years. I think people, I think governments are going to be surprised at the lack of compliance. And and the one thing I've always said about COVID, if we get hit with a virus that has a real rate of lethality. Yeah. right and a real rate of contagion you're not going to need mandates exactly. you're not going to need lockdowns you're not going to need any of this because an undistorted market and in this sense i'm just talking about the free flow of signals would actually activity would just drop right down people would just distance naturally we knew very early on that this thing, yeah, it was serious and it was big, but you know what? It's not civilization ending and we can get through this. The market already knew that as early as like April or May of 2020. Yes. Right? Yes. I so, um, you know, I, I think people will, I, I really do have faith that a, a much larger chunk of the population would just say like, no, we're not, we're not sitting. You can't lock down my business. Are you insane? Like, no. Well, I, I just want to add to people who have not seen my channel before, because you, you, you tweeted this out that if people go back to my archives of 2020, I was, I was not afraid because I own Bitcoin. My whole life was a bit, I knew I could not be canceled. I was saying all this. Stuff. I got kicked off of YouTube for three months because I, <laughs> I, I did. Yeah. But but I well, I, this channel did, but I had a backup. I kept doing shows every day, saying what you're saying. Indeed, the market did know by about May because you remember March the 13th, there was a 2020 blood in the streets. Trump is panicking. Everybody's selling. Every, everybody's selling Bitcoin. I, I People of my channel know this story. I bought two Bitcoin within 24 hours. I spent $10,000 on two Bitcoin. Now that's worth, what is it, $80,000 or whatever combined. So um, no, 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 no. But but by May, Bitcoin and the many stocks, 
People thought it was the end of the world on March the 13th. By, by May the 13th, people who weren't crying to their mommies anymore, real people, everything started recovering. And that's how the rich got richer. The smart, the long-term thinking people got richer because if, if you if you actually thought with your darn head two months after that, you knew it was so, there was no excuse for a clear thinking person. And, I know. And again, you're absolutely right. A real virus, no, I'm not going to go outside if people are really dropping dead. I was outside every single day because it was totally fine. Continue, sorry. In, in, um, I got a bolt after this, but in, in January, I have emails in my sent box, January, 2020, I'm emailing friends telling them, I want you to go to the hardware store and pick up N95 masks. I want you to stock up on provisions, uh, medications, and start making arrangements to keep track of your relatives and your neighbors. Uh, I was wearing an N95 mask in grocery stores in February and people and getting weird looks, right? I was keeping a spreadsheet in March about official death statistics, ICU admissions and stuff like that. I was taking them from official sources, city of Toronto, province of Ontario, government of Canada, government of us and government of Barbados. Cause my wife's family is Barbadian by April in March, I knew uh, my spreadsheets taking the doubling times that the World Health Organization put out. I said, okay, by the end of August, we're going to have something like 85,000 fatalities in Toronto alone. And this is going to, this is really bad. I was afraid, right? This is, this is, this could be the plague. By April or May at the latest, I'm updating this spreadsheet every day. And I'm like, this model is bust. This is not going to happen like this, right? This is not as bad as we think it is, right? So all you had to do was look at the data. And I thought this was good news. I thought this is amazing because surely like there's like scientists and actual experts following this same data going, okay, everything is cool. Stay home if you can. And, you know, like everyone just sort of chill and let's just like, you know, load up on vitamin D and we'll get through this. I thought this is this is not going to be civilization, and and it just the hysteria just accelerated and accelerated, and then we got the lockdown eras for like two years, and the vaccine mandates. So so ridiculous, but hey, it's we made it through it, uh, and right now you got to go. So give your conclusionary remarks. Talk about your business real quick. What you're doing again? He's linked to below. Mark, you've been a great guest. Take it away. Hey, thanks for having me, Adam. Uh, I'll come on anytime you would like. So my my day job is I run a, a web services company called Easy DNS. If you want like a domain name, website, uh, VPS to run like a Noster relay or a BTC pay server, just head on over to Easy DNS. I'll create a coupon code. Uh, let's call it like what? Bitcoin Meister? Or just you know, Meister. Like, Meister maybe. Meister. Okay. Uh, yeah, so we'll create a coupon code for that. My blog is bombthrower.com. You know, um, get on the free mailing list there. I got a premium newsletter at the bitcoincapitalist.com. And I am Stunt Pope on Twitter and Bomb Thrower on Noster. So it's been great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're a true unique beast. All right, everybody, that is it. I'm Adam Meister, Bitcoin Racer, Disrupt Meister. Subscribe to the channel. Follow me on Twitter at TechBalt. Uh, I'd say Shabbat Shalom. It's not Friday yet. Happy Atuba Shabbat tomorrow. See you, everybody, later. Take care. Thank you. All right. Take care, Adam.